This episode is brought to you by Rosak in collaboration with Daily Podcast. Today we will discuss how women's bodies are used as political tools in South Asian culture and South Asia largely. Joining us today is Jahat Sharma. Hi Jahat. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Um, okay, let's get into it. So my first question for you, Jahat, is why are women's body subject to discourse and scrutiny? How does the history of sexuality and sensuality in the South Asian context play a part in this? So, I mean, to start off, like I really want to bring in a theory that was presented to me when I was um, in my intro to gender studies class, uh, my first year at U of T. And so, you know, what we kind of learned was through through the history of like colonization and um, and wanting to create these communities that have like these really rich senses of culture and their own beliefs and values. Women were always created as these um, or, or raised to be these upholders of culture and tradition in, in various communities throughout the history of the world. And that's true for the Indian context too. Um, and so, you know, one, one real example of this is when I talk about um, the history of the partition in one of my episodes, um, something that, that happened during the partition of India was that people like men of, of different religions, of, of Hindu, uh, Muslim, Sikh religion, they would go into houses and they would, you know, literally bring multiple girls and women from, from these houses into the public square of the market and they would strip them naked and rape them and then brand their private parts with phrases like Hindustan Zindabad and Pakistan Zindabad, you know, and I feel like doing that research and learning about these theories put all of this into context for me women's bodies have always been used as a tool of, of dominance and of power and control for, I mean, in, in an individual sense, but also in the context of the state and of society as a whole. And so we've always been subject to discourse and scrutiny and we will, our, our bodies will continue to be, um, you know, until real change has, is, um, brought about through the legal system, through the people who are in politics and um, on a societal level as well. There was a fantastic book written by Amita Honda called Of Silk Saris and Miniskirts that um, I've, I've kept with me since my first year. Um, it's such an amazing book about how South Asian girls continuously have to walk this tightrope of culture between, um, you know, for example, like in our case, between Indian culture and between Canadian culture. And so she's interviewed, um, you know, several girls about their experiences of walking that fine line. And their experience, you know, was that they were scrutinized or controlled by their families and their community, particularly in relation to their sexuality. And even when we look at that, like both historically and now, this whole idea of, you know, for lack of a better word of saying it, like mixing blood between races and different religious groups and between castes even, has been taken so seriously by members of either community. And 
we see that when we see things like honor killings happening, right? It's just taken as such a transgression of that of that boundary and going past that um, that role of what who we are supposed to play as women and as girls as as upholders of our cultural and community values. But I also want to point out that like the same responsibility of upholding those values and of of what will people say is not just something that we kind of dreamt up and you know that we think we think we have to uphold. It's one that's actively policed by our family, our friends, our community members, you know, leaders of the community, whether in religious groups or, or anything like that. And so when, when this policing happens, this is what creates an environment for, for violence and, and sexual violence to go unnoticed and unchecked, right? Through this whole process of telling people like it's not okay to cross these boundaries um when your you know when your sisters your daughters your whoever right they they get into these relationships and now they feel coerced into staying quiet and having to hide their relationship because they won't be accepted by their community or their family but then on the other end of that scale they also feel like they're stuck within that toxic relationship if it turns out to be abusive they can't reach out and get help from anyone because they don't have access to like those resources and if they if they were to admit that they're in an abusive relationship they would receive scrutiny rather than any you know real support um you know like i told you so and people from this community are always like that and and things like that so that's how I think violence against women in our communities are allowed to persist and, and perpetuate. Um, and so we kind of have to take into account both the, the history of what, you know, what it means to be a woman and have that female body and what that has meant to the state, to the government and to our society. And, and then kind of see how that expands or zooms into like that individual experience as well yeah it's also interesting how uh similar values of you know honor are not held for men um and yeah. into other cultures uh, other castes especially you know lower caste because it's thought that uh the woman is almost purified when you know marrying into their family um they could do a few rituals and solve the issue of the woman being from a lower caste um yeah well, that same, um, you know, uh, space is not given to women. Yeah. And like, there's like, there's so many different rules about this. And I, I think we'll talk about this a little bit later when we get into intersectionality, but just, you know, the, the cases where there's rules that, you know, upper caste men can't, I mean, this was, this was back then. I don't know if this has necessarily changed now, but, um, you know, upper caste men cannot rape lower caste women, like, because they're too pure, they couldn't have possibly done any damage or anything like that. Like, those rules are wild, but they come from a, a very specific place within the the laws and the mindset of our community and our society, for sure. Okay, my next question for you is, how do the layers of oppression work to discipline the woman's body? To elaborate, in what ways does intersectionality operate to teach different women in South Asian societies their place? 
Right. So for, you know, for people who have, um, who are familiar with Kimberly Crenshaw's uh, concept of intersectionality, it's, you know, things that like class, race, gender, our sexuality, the culture that we come from, the caste we belong to, our education and income levels, all of these things make up our individual identities, right? And that's what makes our experiences and our lived experiences unique. And it, it also determines what community we're born into or that we are part of. And the boundaries of these intersectionalities are then you know, either implicitly or explicitly policed. We can't cross them. And what I mean by this is, you know, when I'm talking about explicitly crossing a boundary, if someone chooses to, if a, if a woman chooses to marry someone of a different religion, um, you know, or caste, honor killings um, is something that, you know, we all, we've all heard about and we've all seen happen. Um, you can't cross that boundary because if you do, you will be killed for it. And these are also the same transgressions that are sensationalized in the news and on social media. Um, and, and these get stereotyped, right, as they, these backward mentality, um, things that only people from villages and uneducated backgrounds create. But the thing is that it also happens in implicit ways too, right? If you, if you decide to marry someone from a different religion or caste and you're not from, um, you know, let's say you're from a higher socioeconomic class. You may not be honor killed for it, but you may be disowned by your family. You may be expelled from your social groups. Your family may never accept you for that, right? And that has psychological consequences that has emotional consequences as well. And we may not talk about it or we, we may not, that may not get sensationalized enough, but that's a different way of telling, telling girls, um, you know, telling women exactly what their place is and what boundary not to cross, right? Like when you're growing up in, in, in North America and, you know, having your South Asian parents tell you, you know, you can do whatever you want, but you can't get married to, you know, someone who's black or you can't get married to a Muslim or you can't, you know, these are, these are very implicit ways of maintaining those same boundaries and making sure that they don't get crossed. And so things like heteronormativity and homophobia and xenophobia, caste discrimination, all of these things impact our identities as well. They change us and they shape us into seeing what is allowed and what isn't allowed and what behaviors will get us kicked out or disowned by our intersectional groups. All of, you know, all of these things and all of these experiences cause trauma within us. And, and like I said, they shape what we think our you know, next actions will be and how we're allowed to, to move within these groups. But these types of discrimination aren't just dependent on you know, any individual just you know, saying you can't cross these boundaries. They're also driven by larger forces of colonization and the legal systems in our countries, the education system, historical forces, politics and globalization. And particularly, you know, when I talk about the education system, I'm not necessarily talking about, you know, having a bachelor's degree in science or, or something like that. I'm talking about the very um, real fact that sexual education is lacking in, in India, in other South Asian countries, um, to a certain extent in, in North America as well, right? How are we teaching children about consent? How are we teaching them about, um, 
you know, having the right to your own body and what you're allowed to do with it. Um, and so I just wanted to add that, like, back in, uh, back in 2020, I attended an amazing seminar called Looking Forward, Looking Backwards by um, three scholars and activists from Argentina, Canada, and India. And they were talking about how we can create safe cities for women, you know, when we're talking about urban planning and, and just designing those cities in a way that's safe for women to navigate. Um, and one of the things that really stood out to me is that they said we have very different experiences of these cities based on our intersectionalities as well. So for example, like my experience as an upper middle class, um, you know, cis woman will be very different from someone who might be openly gay or lesbian or trans on the same streets, right? I have access to safe transport, which wouldn't be the case for someone from a lower socioeconomic class. Mm -hmm. They would have to take public transport and they might have to take it at a different time of day, which is something that, you know, a, a male in that same situation may not have to think about. They may not have to think about, okay, I'm, I'm coming home at like one o'clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. Would it be unsafe for me? Whereas that same, that same person, that same woman from a lower socioeconomic class would, would have to think like 10 times, but even then she may not have a choice, right? If, if she needs to do what she needs to do to earn a living and needs to come back late at night, there is no choice, but that space is still unsafe. And so I just kind of wanted to put out there, right? That sense of safety that we may feel within specific spaces, that safety is a privilege it's not the norm in India. And we need to be able to acknowledge that, you know, like just because for example, like Delhi feels like a safe space to, to perhaps, you know, me or, or somebody else does not mean that it's a safe space for everyone. Yeah. And I can speak to that because I grew up in Delhi um, and I lived a really sheltered life. While growing up in Delhi, my family is upper middle class. And um, I was driven around everywhere I went. It, um, I cannot speak to experiences of everyone in Delhi, but I can speak to the experience of an average upper middle class person. Yeah, for sure. And it's like, it's interesting to me how it's easy for people to just like not be able to see beyond their own experiences. Like we come from very diverse communities. And so I feel like even if you, like if you were to look around you, you know that there's people who are experiencing things in a very different way that, that you know, you are. And so just kind of acknowledging that privilege is something that I think does not happen and that needs to happen way more um, because unless unless we can acknowledge that that type of privilege and acknowledge that if it's not an issue for you doesn't mean that it's not an issue we can't create change we can't we will never be able to create lasting we will never be able to create lasting change until that is acknowledged and and we are able to work from there because there's also you know, it's not just like an, an emotional thing, for example, if you cross those boundaries, there's tangible societal and legal consequences as well, right? Um, recently, I've been looking at what's happening around that whole concept of love jihad, where men and women are being policed, simply for having social interactions, because they're from two different religious groups, right? And look at how the agency is taken away from the woman, like of all the things that can 
possibly stick out to me as wrong about this whole concept of love jihad and that law, one of those things is just how agency is taken away from the woman in that situation. Because in many of these cases, the father or another male family member from a Hindu community files a case against a Muslim male trying to lure and entice, you know, these Hindu girls or women into their quote unquote trap um, to convert their religion. But like, <laughs> that's, that's kind of assuming that, you know, our, our women or our girls don't have the intelligence, don't have the, the competency to make critical decisions for themselves, right? Yeah. If you, if you're spending all this energy and all the, all your money to educate your girls, right? So that we can become the next leaders and, and, you know, earn well and do better than the, the women before us. And what kind of agency are you leaving for those same girls and women if you're just trying to police them or make that decision for them, you know? Yeah. A woman's of sound, sound mind and consenting age, like it's a personal choice if they want to convert or not. So I think that having this entire concept of love jihad, it's not just about stopping girls from converting from Hinduism to, to Muslim religion, it, to, to Islam, it's, it's more of an attempt to stop interreligious interactions altogether. I, it's very jingoistic, um, I think. They're creating very clear legal boundaries between religions. You can't cross that boundary. And it's kind of myth- mythological in its roots. Um, I don't want to equate that to antiquity. Uh, this is in no way to say that Hinduism is antiquated. Um, or exotic or yeah so there is this deity that my family worships and she's a lesser known deity and she was followed around the earth by a Muslim man who wanted to marry her Um, so he followed her and finally like Sipa she asked the earth to swallow her to protect her and the earth does protect the woman and her dupatta is left on the earth. Um, the Muslim man who is following her marries the dupatta. So in this situation, the woman is protected. The Hindu dignity is sort of protected, yet the man is still the predator. Um, and this kind of disregards the many ways in which uh, Muslim women of lower classes, especially, are predated on by Hindu men, but uh, we will talk about that later. Yeah, so again, like, the, I don't think that this law really has anything to do with stopping, you know, people from converting because, like, uh, yeah, without getting into, like, the whole idiocy of that whole concept, um, if people want to convert, they're free to convert. That's exactly what, you know, being part of a secular and a dem- democratic nation is for, but it's more about an attempt to stop these interreligious interactions altogether, because now you're making people think twice before they ask their Muslim friend to go out, just to go out and eat or do something, right? Yeah, so like if, if you want to go out with your friends, now you're going to be thinking, you know, 10 times if, you know, if the family isn't okay with it, or if the family is xenophobic or anti, you know, Islam, they're, what are they going to do, right? People can't afford to be charged, you know, if people from a lower socioeconomic class or, or anything like that, they're just kind of- A person in India cannot afford to be charged. That is- Yeah, like they're just putting up additional barriers just to kind of meeting and, and telling you like which, again, which boundaries are okay to cross and which are not. So um, yeah, I think that there's very, very real and tangible ways that 
these um, these intersectionalities and these boundaries that are created by society and by the state, they tell us very clearly, you know, how we have to stay in our place, whatever our unique intersectionality is like, you can't cross that because once you do, you're going to have to be subject to financial consequences, legal consequences, psychological consequences, and you know, all of that. My next question for you, Jahaf, is how is the gaze of others shaping how women view themselves and how is intergenerational trauma generated? So for this, I kind of, I guess I'll use a personal example. Um, so when I was in high school, I was in a relationship where for me, like, I think everything that I had learned about being in a relationship was kind of from watching my mom growing up and um, that whole idea of like being a good Indian girl. Um, and I, I think like many people that I've talked to from our community can relate to this because we've never, we've never seen anything different. And so being somebody who's tolerant, being someone who's willing to sacrifice her own boundaries, her own, you know, her own compass of what's okay and what's not okay, all of these things, that is what makes a good Indian girl. And, and so being in that space, that allows your, like you open yourself up to a lot of abuse, right? Physical or, or emotional or otherwise. But I think this is how we kind of become shaped, right? So watching our family members growing up and seeing our mothers or our aunts or our sisters doing this, we absorb that like a sponge. And I, I, I see it now when I look back like at myself, but I also see it with people who are younger than me, um, you know, from our communities. Tolerating abuse in any form or putting every member of the family above yourself or, you know, the idea that like once you get married, you can do what you want. But before then, like you are under your father's, you know, protection or, or um, their rules. All of these things is something that we absorb and we we translate that very, uh, very tangibly in our own relationships, whether or not that's with someone from our own community or not. And, you know, something else that I kind of see is this concept of you know, my husband or my partner is so progressive because he allows me to go out and work or he allows me to go out and do this. And I'm sure like for people who saw the movie Dil Do, that that whole like iconic scene where Farhan yeah. Khan tells him like that, that whole concept of letting you honestly, I think I, I think, think a lot of I saw that in love with him at that moment. Like it was just Yeah, like I didn't realize it, but it was like a light bulb went off. I was like, wait, yes, this is exactly what I felt inside me, but I couldn't say like it he for said so it. Like, long. I know like a, if a woman would have said it, it would have been better for agency purposes, but um, a lot of yeah. people wouldn't have heard it, you know? So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, this, like part of this also just translates to I've seen like I've seen and I've been that person from our community like these us as girls and women we are more likely to be attracted to these toxic traits because that's what we believe love should look like someone who's possessive someone who's controlling someone who you know demands that sacrifice and that silence of us but could never give it back you know and 
when I was, you know, I did an episode where I was talking to um, the founder of the Queer South Asian Women's Network, and they put it so well. They talked about it as a concept of marriageability and our ability to tolerate and sacrifice and stay silent has been socialized and culturalized as the scale of what makes us a good woman or a good wife. Um, and so until, maybe until like we've been through a few bad relationships or until we've been able to kind of contextualize it in this way and see it as violence and, and come to grips with the fact that like, we don't deserve this, right? This is a type of intergenerational trauma that we need to break the cycle yeah yeah quite literally like it it it's going against our own good like not even just like about the decisions that we make but for our own health and wellness it's just bad you know but we never see these things as red flags because because we see them growing up or you know they're not taken seriously when we see them in our own families or in our own communities it's just seen as like yeah well you know he had a bad day at work or, you know, he's just going through some stuff. Well, like, well, shit, I'm going through some stuff too. Like, who's going to account for that, you know? Yes. The word I think we should use here is boundaryless. Uh, because uh, let me give an example in the, with a mythological story. Uh, so the story of Sati and Satyavan, Sati goes to the underworld to get her husband back uh and the moral we're supposed to extract from this was that uh she goes to you know any length she needs to to get to save him and that's what we were not that you should not be you know crossing boundaries you know what it really affects who we see as as a good girl and a bad girl like within our community too because i think you know for like personally growing up i think because I was so boundaryless, um, family members and friends and like whoever, they would just be like, oh my God, like you're so, you're so smart and you're so sensible and you're so loving and caring, which is like, which is fine. Like, yes, I have loving and caring traits, but having no boundaries should not be a positive trait, right? And then alternatively, for the girls who are not like that, for the girls who, for whatever reason, right, they, they have those boundaries within our community and they uphold them, they're seen as bad they're seen as you know she's not gonna make a good wife yeah she's not gonna make a good wife or she's not gonna make a good partner for these reasons and you know I just like I kind of want to bring up the the case of like again like people who are in interracial and interfaith hate and judgment that they um, own family or their extended family and you know, cultural groups that they belong to very tangibly affects the way that we see ourselves upholding that culture and maintaining that barrier. You know, um, you get told things like, you know, what will your children look like? And you'll never be able to pass on that culture to them. You will never be able to have that same kind of home life or, you know, all of these kind of things. And you think that it doesn't, um, or I don't know, maybe people do and maybe this is why they do it because they want to you know police you and change your decisions but it it has caused trauma like that I know I'm saying this a lot but it, it really has you know when you talk to people who have been through these these situations and are going through these situations now particularly as like first generation um, immigrant children we are now learning to navigate these societies and both of these cultures um, in a very, very different way than anyone before us has had to do. 
And so, you know, we might be the first people in our family lines to have an interracial relationship or, or be part of an intercultural or interfaith relationship. And so it's a lot of work, you know, it's a lot of work to be able to confront that and recognize a lot of like what we're going through as trauma, yeah. being able to access resources for it and sit with it and, and try to confront that head on, you know, yeah. not only yeah. for like our own happiness, but also for the, the betterment of our, our own communities. Yeah. I also think it's internalized by um, men a lot. This idea of uh, my partner should be from, I'm, obviously I do not mean all men. I mean yeah. <laughs> uh, certain men. Uh, it's been internalized, this idea that my partner should be from a similar community, a similar culture, so that she can impart um, the values of my religion, my culture to my kids. Right. Uh, which is why a lot of men will date women of other cultures, other religions, uh, other yeah. races, and they won't marry them, which yeah. again um, brings it to, you know, um, what are women's bodies good for? For yeah. population, for asserting dominance, but not uh, good enough for marrying into a family. Right. And that, that's like, I totally agree with you. Like, that's like a way that sometimes like men will tell on themselves because they'll be like, yeah, like I'm, I'm totally progressive. And, you know, I look, I, I date. Um, you know, white girls or, or people who are outside of like my community. But um, like when it comes time to marriage, yeah, they go, they're like, no, like, sorry, because my mom won't allow me, you know, or, or well, like yeah. whatever it is. But like, they, they can't stand up for like themselves or their own right to choose. And it is like, it's, yeah, it's really interesting to see. Yeah. Sure. Uh, it's, it's very difficult when you think you're the only one going through this. But I think this is one way where like social media has actually been very helpful and very transformative um, is when you're able to, you know, be connected to other people within our group um, who, who are like living through those same experiences or living through those same intersectionalities as us, um, you know, who we wouldn't otherwise be connected to because no one feels comfortable talking about this out loud. But then you see, like, I'm not the only person and other people's families are reacting the same way, but that doesn't make me crazy. It's something that, you know, we're all going through and we go through it together. People share, you know, how, what strategies they've used and, you know, what mental health resources they've accessed to kind of go through this time. And I, it's been like, it's been amazing, like mind opening and like just transformative for me to be able to see like for so many different things, it's not, it's not like you're the only person going through this. Cause I feel like sometimes you're like your family or your like your community will make you feel like, oh my God, like how could you do this? Like you are changing, <laughs> you are affecting like our entire family, the future of our whole, you know, like our entire generation, you're just doing like all of this stuff and it's all your fault. But then you see like other people are doing the same thing. And I'm like, oh, well like, okay. I was like, all right, I'll just buckle down for the ride. Then it's not so bad. <laughs> We're all in this together. And that feeling of solidarity is really like the internet has really enriched it. Because how else yeah. do we know about, you know, XYZ in New Jersey who's going through the exact same thing? And for yeah. a moment, you feel like, yes, it's it's okay. Like, I'm not doing something, you know, impossible. Yeah. Exactly. And like, like you see other people who have made it through and, and you go, okay, well, you know, maybe there's some hope. 
for yeah. me because otherwise yeah. like that can be a very dark place mentally as well to to try and kind of navigate and and make your way through yes of course okay my fourth question for you is how has the politics of rape culture distributed responsibility along gender lines how uh, has there been a change in the way women embody responsibility in the last 20 years so like starting the early 2000s so okay i want to like i'm going to give like a small disclaimer on this this is totally based on like my personal experiences and and my thoughts and interactions so far but um in the last 20 years i think there's definitely been some positive change in the sense that there's more awareness and realization that you know things like sexual assault and sexual violence are wrong and you know that it's not necessarily the fault of the victim or the survivor and that you don't have to stay in an abusive relationship like i think i think maybe one big change i've seen over the last 20 years is in our communities i think divorce has become more okay yeah for sure not yeah. you know for like sure. that's definitely changed like between between like me being like the age that i am now and you know the last generation my my parents age that's definitely changed right and the thing is though like this progress has only just begun to scratch the surface and because as an indian community or as a south asian community we're so we're so diverse and i think like it's too vast to try and measure everyone's progress on the same scale because if i if i look at india like on a broad scale i don't think i can say like that there's been like change on on the sense like on a, like a, on a larger scale like generally yes we have been moving in a positive direction but only because there has been like there's ngos there's activists there's scholars who are doing this work you know and and on a on an individual level there are people in you know our family like our moms our sisters who are doing and, and our, our and our dads on like some level there are people out there who are trying to make it better for the next generation than it was for for themselves you know yeah but that being said like we still have to teach and empower each other to recognize the signs of toxic relationships and and what abuse looks like we really need to like be able to show and and raise our girls and our women and our boys to to know what those red flags look like in a relationship you know and we still need legal changes to marital rape laws marital rape is still legal in india like that needs to change we yeah. still need real sustainable justice for rape survivors and victims across the board right death penalty is not a sustainable change no encountering rapists is not sustainable change that only you know it doesn't really fix it but that only addresses one case itself it does nothing to change things on a broader scale and i know like target some people think are not the causes i'm sorry yeah exactly no no that's exactly right and like some people think that india is too big of a country to ever create this kind of change and i know i know that this is exhausting work like sitting down and 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 putting together the podcast episodes and doing that research honestly was was exhausting and it took a toll emotionally and and psychologically but it needs to be done and if we don't start somewhere and if we don't work together it's not going to happen right like we i i talk about this i think in in one of my episodes but when i was in uft and i was 
doing this research, particularly in my final year, I was really focusing on this issue because um, I, I think I had just like realized how passionate I was about fixing this problem. And so one of the things that I kept noticing was like, all I'm doing is reading these articles and reading these theories about problems. And it's just about the problems in our society and the problems that we're encountering and the cases that are, you know, of, of rape and sexual violence that are occurring. Yeah. But no one was ever really talking about the solutions. Yeah. And when I started working on the podcast and attending these seminars and networking online, I started to see there are so many organizations doing such amazing work to, you know, to, to really change, like from, from whatever angle they're working from, you know, for example, like the safe city seminar that I was talking about, they're talking about literally how urban planners can create safer cities. And it is so interesting if you sit down and listen to them, right? Just the way that the alleys are, are planned and where streetlights are placed and, and all of these things, right? It is, it is something that creates change on, on a much wider level. And so, you know, in addition to, to all of that, we really just need to have change that comes, you know, like how are we creating that cultural change? How is everyone doing their job within their specific niche to make it a safer place for, for women and girls? And, you know, how are we as, as families perceiving and tolerating these acts of sexual violence too, right? Yeah. We, like maybe for, you know, for, for women who are in a straight relationship, if you get married and now you want, and if you're from, let's say like a higher socioeconomic class, you want to get divorced, maybe there won't be as much pushback now. But if you're a South Asian who identifies as LGBTQ plus, and you are in an abusive relationship, we need to change the culture so that they can get familial support too. They're not alone in that situation. It's okay. Like it happens. You find yourself in those situations. Let's get you out of it. Let's get you home. You know, how do we create all of that, that kind of change? And I know that like, I've had feedback on like the podcast too. Why don't you talk about men? You know, men are victims of sexual violence too. And, and that's absolutely true. But the reason that we wanna focus on women and girls and why we wanna focus on members of the LGBTQ plus community, why we wanna fo focus on those marginalized subgroups of our community and our society is because when we account for like the safety and needs from people from the bottom up, then you make sure people at the top are good too, right? If we're focusing on people just at the top, you're never gonna to get to the people who need the most help so start from the bottom up and then we will create an environment where we all have space to be safe and respected and to have bodily integrity and be free to thrive. That's a beautiful note to end on. Thank you so much for talking to us today, Jaha. And thank you all for tuning in. This is Anya and I wish you a happy Women's Day.